0: I think that there is a risk that as soon as decision makers enter the office from my generation they will have a very different view on how to tackle a topic like inflation and I can guarantee you that in my forecast as soon as all decision makers are millennials as I am I can guarantee you at that point when the tipping point is is there then we will tax the shit out of the boomers I'm I'm not one second in doubt about that
2: A new world order is emerging, and in our Global Macro Series, I, along with my co-host, Jim Kassang, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues, and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guests today are two of the most generous macro thinkers when it comes to sharing their insights and opinions on social media and on their own platforms. They are opinionated and they don't always agree on the big macro picture, which makes the conversation so much more fun and engaging. So please enjoy our conversation with Andreas Steno and Alfonso Picciello. Andreas and Alfonso, welcome and thank you so much for joining Jem and I today for what I'm sure will be a fun, passionate, and perhaps unpredictable conversation as part of our Global Macro series. How are you guys doing? How are things where you are today?
3: Here, here in the Netherlands, it's cloudy like hell. Uh, I am a guy from the south of Italy, living in the north of Europe for most of the time. So it's cloudy and it's not good. No, just joking. All good Niels. And you? Chem, how are you doing? <laughs> doing well. Chicago's uh Beautiful in the springtime.
4: So uh, finally enjoying the weather here.
0: I, I could just as well admit that I'm, I'm getting a bit tired of bearish investors. So uh, I've, I've had a lot of meetings over the past few weeks, and I can guarantee you that the sentiment is very bearish out there. So, um, yeah.
4: The market weather is cloudy for sure
2: exactly well let's see if we can't change some of that uh in the next uh, 60 or 70 minutes now since it's your first time on our podcast maybe i could ask both of you to kind of just set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation by maybe just some highlights from each of your journeys uh, until today, which I think our listeners will find very relevant for today's conversation. And then we dive into all sorts of topics. So perhaps, Alfonso, I could ask you to uh, give us a little bit of background.
3: Sure. So I am a 31 years old guy from the south of Italy. My accent is very thick. You probably have got that already. Uh, I started in this business, I always say, at 14 years old not because of slavery, but because my mother is the treasurer of a small Italian bank, which meant that I was always exposed to BTP future charts since I was 14. And I used to ask her, what the hell is that? Why am I eating my pasta looking at this BTP future? What the hell is that? So she would explain that to me and I would be like, okay, I don't care. But at some point I started to care. So I went into the the weeds uh, when I was a kid, basically, and then did university. I ended up working for a European bank, ING, for seven years and I was uh, lucky and skilled to be able to uh, lead a team of portfolio managers and become the head of of an investment portfolio there. Multi-asset, the focus was on fixed income, to be honest, Euro and Dollars. It was a 20 billion portfolio. I did that for a few years. And after that, I decided that I had enough of corporate politics, basically, and uh, in the end started uh, my own journey, which I've been doing for the last six months, Mainly through uh, my free newsletter, it's called the Macro Compass. Gets out every week. It's investment ideas, a macro framework to navigate markets, and my Twitter account. And I spoke too much. Sorry, Andreas, your turn. <laughs> uh, you, you
0: actually mentioned a few things that I didn't know about you. So, um, kudos for that. Um, I, my my background is to a certain extent similar. Uh, I also started looking into finance at a very early stage in my life. Um, I'm a bit older than you, Infonso, uh But otherwise, um, I actually remember my first experience with financial markets being a uh, sort of an equity game with monopoly money uh, uh, run by a Danish bank. Uh, And I entered this game at probably the age of 16 or 17 and ended up winning it against all of the portfolio managers of that bank. And they uh, started saluting me um, because they wanted to know uh, how I did (laughs) <laughs> uh, manage uh, that material return over uh, such a short time span. And um, the answer was basically just to lever up on risk. Uh, so I just had an extremely high beta to risk. Uh, and um, fortunately, the market was rising like uh, like crazy over that. Time span, and ultimately I won against all of these portfolio managers. So I I, I learned a lot about about high beta positions during that um, during that equity game. Um, but otherwise, um, currently employed within a real estate private equity fund. Uh, former uh, sell side analyst for ten years, um, uh, ultimating at um, the um, uh, biggest Northern European bank called Nadia as the global chief strategist. Um, so now I'm on the buy side for the first time ever which is quite an, inter- an interesting journey.
2: Absolutely. And as far as I know, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes here, you also managed in your career, Andreas, to be kind of censored, I think, at some point, where I think you mentioned something about vaccine companies and then people didn't like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, at least <laughs> a Finnish politician didn't like it. Um, okay. And then the show started, so... <laughs> Yeah. I, well, uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of a check mark that you need to be censored at some point during your career, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think it's pretty cool, and uh, of course, it—the uh, good thing is that it brought you guys together, and you are absolutely crushing it uh, on all sorts of platforms. So, uh, kudos to that. I want to start out maybe just asking both of you to spend a little bit of time um, again, just for some context, um, to talk a little bit about your current macro framework. I think that's always useful but and, and I want also to come to you first again, Alfonso. but in addition to maybe thinking about just your current outlook, it could also be interesting to hear if something has changed in your outlook in the last six to 12 months just to kind of frame where you're coming from and what might have led you to your your um, belief at the moment.
3: So, Niels and Cem, uh, I always started a conversation with uh, sell-side analysts, so with the Andreas of this world, sitting on the buy side, um, getting very tired of macro blubbering very quick, and instead I used to ask every strategist or other PM, what are your trades? It's very simple, talk, talk to me about your book, your top three trades. So when you ask me these questions, I'm going to start with the answer with the three trades, which which are, I'm short the S&P 500, I'm short BTPs against long boons, and I'm short credit spreads in the US, which is basically, (laughs) it's a very, very directional bet on uh, tighter financial conditions. Um, And that's because my macro model is suggesting me that the base case environment is going to be for tighter financial conditions going forward. And slower economic growth at the same time, which is a very toxic combination for risk assets in general. And that assessment comes from uh, one of the main tools that I use, it's called the Macro Compass. It's a four quadrant, very simple asset allocation tool that guides me towards looking at different asset classes across different macro regimes. And it's based on a bunch of forward looking indicators for economic growth, uh, the king being the Global Credit Impulse Index that I've built, which looks very Poor has been looking on a descending path for a few months, actually a few quarters, and that's because governments around the world are not handing over fiscal stimulus anymore. They stopped somewhere in Q1 2021, and banks are not lending apart from mortgages that much, which means that the amount of spendable money for the private sector is not increasing as fast as it was increasing during 2020, 2021. And as the private sector doesn't get new resources, new credit, new new credit, new money basically to spend with a lag, earnings, GDP growth, uh, consumer confidence, they will all start to drop as well in sync with the credit impulse and other forward-looking indicators. So we are seeing this, you know, slowing economic growth impulse, which doesn't mean we're going to go into a recession straight away, but we're going to grow below analyst consensus. And on top of that, I'm seeing uh, central banks around the world tightening monetary conditions and financial conditions pretty aggressively and pushing risk-free real interest rates above equilibrium levels pretty quick. And when that happens, of course, the portfolio allocation choices from asset managers and other capital allocators around the world is going to shift towards a more defensive stance because they get the risk-free real return, which is now positive in most jurisdictions. It's positive in the US. It's getting even positive in Europe to a certain perspective which will, of course, influence them to go for the safest side of the risk spectrum rather than go and buy ABS, CLOs, mortgage-backed securities, credit spreads, and all that stuff that you want to chase where your risk-free real interest rate is negative. So the combination of the two makes me very defensive on risk assets, which is why I'm short the three positions I mentioned before.
2: Pretty interesting. Good. What about you, Andres? How how do you see the world right now?
0: Well, um, in contrast to... Alfonso, I actually think that we are in a recession already, uh, at least in Europe. Uh, And I think it's safe to say that um, the core countries of the Eurozone uh, will remain in a recession for maybe the next couple of quarters as well, uh, Germany being the clear example of that. Uh, So I am extremely puzzled. To say it the least, about the consensus that central banks can keep on pushing, and I know I will disagree with Alfonso on this today, uh, because I'm I'm basically leaning more and more in the di- direction that central banks have already done enough via uh, tightening their rhetoric uh, lately um, in terms of 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 bringing inflation down, because I think inflation will come down naturally into next year just as a consequence of everything that has happened uh, from a central bank perspective over the past couple of quarters rhetorically. Uh, So my main take today is basically that I think long bond yields have peaked uh, as a consequence of a very clearly slowing growth cycle and also a slowing inflation cycle. And I'm saying this on the day where uh, German inflation printed at a 60, uh, sorry, six decade high. And I strongly uh, believe in that. Uh, one thing that I would like to to mention, in terms of what has changed in in my um, uh, in terms of my views over the past year, is that um, um, initially, when first of all Trump, but secondly Biden. Um, started using these direct transfers to each and every household in the US, I saluted those as a brilliant uh, invention in the toolbox uh, fiscally. Uh, And I even went as far as suggesting it to European politicians in a couple of newspapers to do the same. Uh, I'm extremely happy that they didn't do so um, because I think this is a key reason behind the current inflationary pressure that we see. Uh, What I missed uh, was probably the fact that if you... um, send direct transfers to each and every household during a lockdown. You eventually force people into buying physical goods instead of services, uh, which is a very inflationary policy uh, at a time where with with already stressed supply chains due to lockdowns, border constraints, etc. Uh, so I think this whole um, fiscal uh, change of scenery that we saw through 21 uh, or or 2020 and 2021 uh, was a mistake. Uh, and I admit to that today, even though I supported it initially.
2: Okay, that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm sure we're gonna get back to some of those things uh, for sure, but it's very good to know that there are some differences between you. and uh, so we'll we'll try to keep everyone uh, calm during the discussions today. Jim, why don't you uh, jump in and uh, let's see where, where we're going to go from here. So I'm going to pull on that thread that, uh, let's
4: start there, that, that Andreas just mentioned and, and start with the Fed and um, central banks writ large in inflation, right? I have a mental model and you guys on social media and whatnot may have heard me kind of air this, maybe not. But, um, you know, broadly, uh, we've been in a very uh, free market economic system driven by central banks and monetary policy for almost 40 years, right? I think it's important to have that context. Um, You know, that's driven a technological revolution because we've sent essentially free money to corporations and wealthy individuals to invest and invest for the long term. That has created broadly a very deflationary environment, particularly for the last 20 years as we've accelerated that. It's also accelerated globalization because corporations are ultimately profit-seeking entities that are looking to reduce their costs and compete on better and better technologies. It's natural selection on steroids, I like to say, right We've been sending money to planet Palo Alto, you know Palo Alto here in San Francisco sending money to um, you know this other planet that creates amazingly um, you know advanced technological goods that uh, in return sends those back to Earth. Uh, and and so we don't get the money that's printed here. Well, ultimately, corporations do. That's again obviously there's a wealth effect, but that primarily goes to the wealthy. Obviously, there is um, you know a wealth effect, right? Uh, you know, not sorry, a wealth effect. There's also a labor trickle down effect, right? The, mm-hmm. They do hire labor, but with globalization, a lot of that leaves America. A lot of that leaves Europe and goes um, to other countries, right? So. That's why we've been, in my view, in a deflationary environment, really, for the last, you know, 28 to 40 years, um, with more and more monetary policy as the solution. That's great if you look at central banks, because you have, you know, two mandates, uh, price stability and maximum employment, and it gets you there. The thing that they don't have as a mandate is inequality, right? And what we've done is we've created massive inequality as a function of 40 years of of supply-side economics, essentially, which is what monetary policy is. So this is my view, and the reason I I bring this out there is this led to populism. We started seeing it about eight years ago or so. Uh, Globally, uh, in America, we got Donald Trump who brought the right-left, he's actually very populist. Uh, We got the left uh, going even more left with Bernie Sanders. Around the world, we've seen populism, right? I think that's hard to debate at this point. And that populism was in wait, and then COVID happened, and fiscal policy, right? Um, and this is kind of goes to your point, Andres. That was to address the inequality that's been building dramatically for 40 years. Um, so that was not uh, to stimulate—I mean, yes, it was to save kind of this uh, downward move in markets, but instead of responding with supply-side monetary policy, which we've done every other time, this was a very different thing, and that money is— is different, has a velocity of one. It doesn't go to planet Palo Alto. It goes directly to, um, you know, pocketbooks. And um, that velocity of one ultimately led uh, to the inflationary impulse that we saw. It's also led to a supply side effect. So that's the demand effect, supply side effect in the sense that now people are retiring, uh, they're working less hours. Um, You also have the COVID effects that made it worse, obviously with supply chain. and there's a lot of other knock-on effects, which is like nationalism and all the things that tend to happen in periods of populism, which are world wars and uh, you know social strife. So that's my mental model. I've thrown that out there because I want to hear your guys' kind of thoughts on that. Um, obviously, we're in a period of populism that's not probably going away. Now it's populism paired with inflation. Now we're going to get price controls, right? We're going to get gas tax holidays and first-time homebuyer tax credits, all kinds of things that sound wonderful to people, but that still actually makes inflation worse. And I believe that this impulse, that this inflationary impulse is for the long term because it's driven by populism. Um, and that's not going away. And I think that's the important thread. Do, does the Fed, do central banks have the ability to address the inflation that's being caused by the turn towards populism, towards fiscal policy? I want to hear your thoughts and thoughts on whether you think this inflationary impulse is, is longer term or do you think it's going to turn to deflation? Obviously, in the short term, there's a lot, there's a big disagreement here. I think leading off there would be a great place to start. Sorry for talking uh, they- so long.
0: <laughs> no worries at all. I mean, let, let me initially say that I uh, I share your view uh, on the inflationary effects of the um, change of scenery that we've seen fiscally through 2020 and 2021. I also agree with you that uh, QE is to a large extent deflationary uh, in sharp contrast to what central banks have told us. Uh, so the reason why I think QE is, is deflationary is simply that there is no velocity at all in the money that you create in in qe programs as a consequence of bank reserves being stuck between uh, financial institutions with the bank account at the central bank um, and the deposit that is created uh, on top of that qe program is basically given to a pension fund um without any um whatsoever incentive to, to um float this uh this new dollar this new euro into the real economy they're just buying another uh, financial instrument. Um, so QE means low velocity means a lack of inflation. I think it's um, it's fairly safe to say that now that we've tested it empirically for more than a decade. Uh, my point is here that uh, you need to look at inflation from both a structural perspective but also from a cyclical perspective. And right now I think the pendulum is moving towards a clear slowdown in inflation as a consequence of a lack of credit growth as a consequence of a slowing uh, growth cycle and as a consequence of an easing supply chain due to f- a fewer restrictions uh, related to COVID. Uh, so th- these three things in tandem point towards l- slowing inflation as a cyclical theme. But as a structural theme, I tend to think that you're right. As soon as the economy slows down, we will probably see the same toolbox being utilized again. So direct transfers, uh, soft universal universal basic income measures um, and those kind of targeted fiscal measures uh, that are very inflationary in nature. Um, so from a structural perspective, I tend to agree fully with your analysis. From a cyclical perspective, I think it's time to bet on low inflation.
3: Hmm. Mr. Steno puts me on the spot here. So <clears throat> let me see. Um... First, I think, Chem, we should talk about money for a second, shall we? I mean, I don't want to do the whole Jeff Snyder thingy, but at least partially. Dive in. So Andreas was very right on uh, distinguishing between QE uh, creating a certain form of money and the government creating a certain form of money. So QE creates bank reserves and bank reserves are just stuck in the interbank system. And um, yes, M2 can go up as a result of of QE, but M2 measures the entire amount of bank deposits and similar in the system, including bank deposits held by pension funds and asset managers. And the PIMCO can buy bread if they have more bank deposits as a result of a QE transaction. They, They got taken the bonds away from the Fed. They now have a bank deposit at JP Morgan instead of the bond they had before. And the bank deposit at J.P. Morgan is just a bank deposit at J.P. Morgan. They can't buy any bread or oil with it, so. Sorry, but QE itself doesn't do much to the spendable bank deposits that are the ones that generate, potentially generate inflation. The spendable bank deposits, so the, the bank deposits that Chen, Andreas, Niels, and myself have on our account, they are printed by governments and banks, commercial banks, when they lend, and governments when they decide to do fiscal transfers, fiscal deficits, and all sorts. Uh, We talked about velocity, but even then it's not a given that by increasing the amount of bank deposits in our account, CHEM, we're gonna get more inflation. See Japan. The the Japanese government has been printing deficit for 25 years, 30 maybe, never ending deficits year after year, and where is the inflation in Japan? It's not there because the private sector has been taking the the newly created deposit that the Japanese government have been sending them via these deficits, and, uh, and they've been saying, I'm levered, I don't know what to do with this, I'm gonna repay back some of my existing debt. And as they do that, they destroy existing leverage. So they take the money from the government, then they pay back their own loan, and then the result of that is nothing, because the newly created money doesn't go after goods and services. So even then, it's, it's not an easy discussion. Now, your point, chen was, once we have defined the different forms of money, what's inflationary and what's not, Your point is, okay, so we're walking towards a a situation where governments are much more worried about inequality and they're gonna be trying to fix some of that or to keep the population at bay by transferring money on their bank accounts, so doing more fiscal intervention. Two things from this perspective. The first is, I was lucky enough being on the buy side, um, managing a lot of notional money that people wanted to talk to me, including policymakers. Wow, that was cool. So you go and talk to them and you realize that policymakers are not proactive. Policymakers are strongly reactive. And so if there is a crisis that puts the credit creation system and the wealth effect through higher asset prices system At in danger, they will step in and do something to make sure that the system keeps afloat. Now, the US did too much. I think it's very clear, as Andreas pointed out, that they printed too much money. The US government, not the Federal Reserve, the US government printed too much money. Now, we're seeing a situation where inflation has picked up. And uh, on, on Twitter in 2021, I had to fight with basically everyone that used to tell me that the government would keep on printing money forever. You know, it's a new regime, they will keep on printing money. It's just the new way of things. The last fiscal stimulus in the US is dated March, 2021. We are in May, 2022, when the government hasn't announced any new fiscal measure. They're actually draining resources from the private sector because they see an excess in aggregate demand that they wanna bring back and make sure the inflation you know, situation goes, goes under control. Why? Again, they are reacting to a situation. The situation they are reacting to today is the opposite. We have a too much buoyant aggregate demand, according to them, they're, they're scaling back uh, things. I can't foresee, Chen, the governments, uh, the Western government saying, from now onwards, we are gonna structurally transfer more resources to the private sector year after year after year after year. Yes, there's, there can be a bit of a shift But the shift I see is more in the fact that the government has been proven by facts that if they react strong enough with the fiscal lever, they get an economic pickup. They get the pickup in aggregate demand that they're looking for. Actually, they should be careful with how much they do because otherwise they get an inflationary spike. So if you ask me what the experience that we have had has done is to prove to governments they can use the fiscal lever in a reactive way if there is a problem, They should be careful in how much they do, otherwise they incur in further problems. But it hasn't changed at all the structural environment where they're gonna say, oh, we're gonna be printing more deficits. Talk to the Germans, talk to the Dutch, talk to the Danish in Europe. Go to them and tell them that they have to blow a hole in their balance sheet every year, year after year, because there is inequality and there is populism. I'm sorry, but especially in Europe, that's not gonna be possible. And in the US, we are seeing a situation where If inflation picks up, policymakers want to make sure they shrink it back to the status quo where they're comfortable with inflation expectation, et cetera. They are draining resources from the private sector as we speak. They are not injecting further resources. Policymakers are reactive, not proactive, and this won't be changing.
4: I actually, um, I completely obviously agree that policymakers are reactionary. I think that goes without saying, especially in a democracy, right? Um, Unfortunately, I I don't think they're, because it is a democracy, I think it's less reactive to what they should be doing and more reactive to what the people want um, or what's politically uh, expedient. Um, And I, uh, at least here in the US, again, I think this is where we're gonna maybe go back and forth. I feel like maybe European policymakers sometimes are more sophisticated, depending on the country. But um, sometimes, (laughs) I said very very carefully there. Um, But, um, you know, Rhetoric, uh, you know, here in the US, whether you're you know, a poor white from West Virginia or a poor African-American from Chicago is, um, you know, uh, distrust of government, uh, you know, uh, rich versus poor populism at its core. And it's only been exacerbated by inflation. So we had, a pop- we had populism, which got met by fiscal policy, which made people a little happy, and then we got inflation as a response. And now people on the bottom are you know, pitchforks in hand saying, hey, this inflation is not okay. And at the midterm here, they're gonna be coming for Biden and that administration because of inflation. And you better believe all the rhetoric is going to be about helping fight inflation, not uh, from a policy perspective, but for individuals, right? For actual human beings, helping them out with the inflation at hand. And ironically, That type of policy, price controls by any other name, they won't call it that, right, um, is inflationary, secularly. Um, I think the populist response is alive and well, it's just getting started, really. Um, And I think um, government will continue to be very active, even if it's not rational, given the framework we're talking about. And again, they won't call it fiscal policy, it won't be checks to individuals anymore, in in the usual sense, but it will be gas tax holidays, like I said. First-time homebuyer tax credits, things that are going to you know help with education, educational uh, credits and, and discounts on on um, you know interest, uh, you know forgiveness of loans, et cetera. And all of that ultimately only increases that impulse, in my opinion. This is just being polemical here. Um, it's hard to say for sure, but I think it's important.
2: Can I throw in three more things? Because I think I mean this topic obviously is very important. So I think we're going to spend a little bit of time on that. But I do want to throw in three things that I didn't hear you uh, talk about so um, and 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 maybe in in particular i'm very interested in in andreas is your view on this and how that fits into this kind of peak inflation so in my simple uh mind i have three things i look at i look at potential deglobalization and i don't think that's going to be deflationary in any shape uh, or form i'm looking at esg and i don't see that as being deflationary either And then I'm looking at demographics. And here I'm a little bit uncertain because I hear arguments on both sides. But one recent argument uh, that I came across is this argument that workers are deflationary and dependents are inflationary. And we're heading towards a period of time where there are going to be a lot more dependents than workers. And so that will keep pushing inflation higher, so without getting into too much details on, on each, because I think I think we all know where, where, where these uh, arguments um, are, are coming from, H- how do these three things play into your framework? Um, let's go back to you, Andreas, again.
0: I, I mean, if we, if we start with demographics, um, <laughs> if you look at the uh, demographic projections from the World Bank, the United Nations, etc., um, for Europe... Let's start there. They look horrible, all of them. Um, If you look at the potential growth of the labor force um, on a yearly basis going forward by 30 years, then I would be very, very surprised if we even have growth in the labor force in 10 years from now, uh, maybe even in in five to 10 years from now. So if if we simply translate that into a structural growth perspective, then it means that um, the... uh, growth projections should be extremely low, maybe even around zero if we look 15, 20 years forward, essentially what we have in Japan, right? Um, So if you look at the demographics in isolation, then I don't see any reason to fear (laughs) an an inflationary breakout to the upside for Europe. I'm a bit more in doubt about the US because uh, demographic projections actually look better in the US. even if you exclude the um, possibility of immigration, uh, so I'm much more certain certain on the prospects for the eurozone in this regards, and also for China. Take a look at the demographic projections for China from the UN and the World Bank. They look absolutely horrible.
2: Okay, if I can just interrupt you there, Andreas, because okay, so you're definitely taking the stand that less workers actually will. Decrease inflationary pressures because what I was arguing is actually it's going to increase. Because yep. workers are by definition deflationary, and you can say that with fewer workers, well, maybe we're going to see, um, you know, a return of strong unions, higher minimum wages, all of those things because they're going to be in demand. And the other thing is, of course, that the dependents are going to shift, meaning the dependents are going to be much bigger on the elderly side, and caring for elderly is a mandatory co- a mandatory cost for governments, right? They can't just say, well, we don't really care about the the older population, right? It's going to cost money. That's the argument I'm hearing. But actually, what I'm hearing from you is actually, you you don't think that that holds in terms of, of, of demographics becoming more inflationary as we as we get more dependent uh, relative to workers? Because I completely agree on the demographics because they are clear, we can all see yeah. them.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, it takes 20 years to create a 20 year old, right? So we know where this is headed. Um, <laughs> so it, it, um, on, on the last question you asked on savings and um, uh, the costs of taking care of, of, of the elderly, uh, my assumption, my working assumption is basically that um, older the population the bigger the probability that the average worker saves more to ensure that they actually have savings left uh, by the age of i don't know 75 or 80 Um, because as the dependency ratio increases the risk of the government not taking care of the elderly also increases in my view because that's the only simple solution to that um to that issue Uh, so i i'm of course, an economist, so I, I may be biased in this debate, but I, I would probably argue that you need to save more if the dependency ratio increases. So if we get more elderly compared to the working age population. Uh, and if we start saving more as a consequence of that demographic schism, then it leads to lower interest rates, not higher.
2: Okay, and and with ESG and, and deglobalization, anything there that, that you're I, worried I about?
0: My, the dark horse, in terms of my inflation view, is the energy policy aspect of the equation. Because, I mean, eventually I think it's impossible to get rid of of our natural resources from Russia within a timeframe of, I don't know, 24 months or whatever they want to. Um, It's simply impossible. Uh, So if they actually want to go down that road, then it is a massive cost side pressure that we just need to accept politically. But by the end of the day, my forecast would be that, when when people start seeing like doubled or tripled prices at the at the pump right they 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 tend to vote for some for politicians
3: uh, choosing another path
2: sure what about you uh alfonso
3: i'm very opinionated on the topic so this is going to be fun good excellent so, uh, let's see uh let's talk about the labor force and demographics so on on the labor force growth it's pretty bad and i think everybody has to agree with that it's uh, Basically impossible to argue otherwise. Now let's talk about this. What does a smaller labor force mean for inflationary pressures? Okay, so you said, Niels, that a smaller labor force might basically want to demand higher wages because you know if there is enough demand for for, for labor and we need labor and there is less supply of labor, that these guys need to get paid more. And you talked about unions, so that's a, that's an interesting thing. So this brings me back to the 70s where unions were extremely strong with a very strong wage bargaining process uh, on the private sector side. And a lot of people are trying to reference the 70s as the, the basically the reference period, the reference macro decade for the 20s, and I couldn't agree less. There is one main difference. I'm just gonna bring it on with a statistic. The 70s was a highly labor intensive industrial era where whereby today, uh, we are we are in a very technological economy, and we're going towards more robotization and technology going forward. And the statistic I want to put forward is the following: Do you know how many people a U.S. company needed in the '70s to generate one million of sales in a year, and how many employees they need today? Today they need one tenth, ten percent of the employees they had in the '70s to generate the same one million of sales. This is probably going to get even less over the next decade because of technological advancement, robotizations, Because you know anybody can start uh, a substack today with basically zero starting costs, and if he's good enough in building an audience, he can even start a business out of that. It's just one example of where we are going, where the labor bargaining power and and the fact that unions might come back representing labor. Yeah, they can, but the economy is moving towards a completely different regime, which is a technological regime and not an industrial regime. So we should always keep that in mind, even if the labor force shrinks and it is a highly valuable labor force, the demand for labor will be there, but demand for labor will lower over time because of technological advancements. And those won't stop. We are going towards that direction. That 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 pattern won't stop very quickly, or we won't reverse back to an industrial economy anyway very, very soon. The other point that I have to make forward when it comes to um, ESG is very important because we are now saying, okay, uh, basically we are short commodities, short lithium, short copper, short nickel, short whatever we need to green up our economy. And then we are looking at how much copper we need today to make sure that we go to net zero emissions by 2040 or 50 or whatever the politicians are telling us. And we look at the technology we have at disposal today and we make these assumptions. We say, you know, we need uh, double the copper production and consumption that there is today, and therefore we're gonna have bottlenecks and it's it's gonna cost us more and it's inflationary. So you're telling me that over the next 20 to 30 years, We're going to have no innovation, no technological advancement from that perspective that is going to make us find a way to use less copper to get to the same point. We have had massive improvement when it comes to technology adoption and commodities, um, you know, the usage and the, um, the output we can get out of the same amount of commodities. And people are extrapolating now, assuming for for the next 40 years, no advancement in technology from that perspective. So yes, ESG is inflationary. Of course it is, net zero transition is inflationary. But again, as for the labor side, also here people are, I think, underestimating the amount of technological progress we're gonna be making over the next decade, which is gonna require less labor and it's gonna require less commodities that we think today is needed given today's technology at our disposal. So this is the second point. And then, wow, I really sound like a disinflationist here, which which I am, which I am. And then the, the third point is, the inflation debate, Niels, is very interesting, but to me, I'm a market guy. I'm a macro guy, market guy, I would say. So it all comes down to interest rates at the end of the day, because as my mentor used to say, Just tell me where treasuries are and how the two stands curve is in the US and in Europe and I can tell you how any asset class is trading or is supposed to be trading in this macro environment. And I think he's he's right. It's like a sort of a first principle is to understand bonds and yield curves in any point in time. So let's talk about nominal yields. And if I look at nominal yields, they are the sum of inflation expectations and real yields. And so we talked about the inflation side, but what about the real yields? So real yields are obviously dictated over the very long term by the structural real GDP growth we are able to produce. And the structural real GDP growth we're able to produce is basically the sum of the growth in labor supply and the productivity of capital and the productivity of labor. And now we are talking about a labor supply growth, which is gonna be negative in Europe, very likely over the next decade. So we start with the handicap, our labor force shrinks. So we talk about the wage pressure that might come from a lower labor force. Okay, it's an hypothesis. But one thing I know for sure, is Niels, is that if the labor force shrinks, your potential GDP uh, shrinks as well. Chatteris paribus. Chatteris in this case, well, I sound very smart. The other things are uh, the productivity. Productivity of capital, productivity of labor. So is that gonna be enough, the productivity gains, to offset the almost certain drop in the labor force? I'm not sure about that, but by the looks of things, it looks like we're gonna get some technological progress. Okay, cool. So the sum of the two equations, real growth is gonna remain relatively poor and inflation expectations, we might debate some inflationary pressures, some disinflationary pressures, we just put on all the table, overall, it doesn't look to me we are staring into the abyss of a regime change for nominal yields. If you ask me if I sum all up and I make a base case scenario, I see real growth trending slowly negative on a structural basis over the next 20 to 30 years. And I see inflation, we can bring, you know, some some topics on the table, some inflationary topics, some disinflationary topics on the table. I don't think the the base case for nominal yields has changed in a way that we're going to see treasuries at five percent, like Jamie Dimon calls year in and year out. I don't think we're going to see that happening, to be honest.
2: Okay, no, that's fair, and and I want to get to to uh, Jim and, and and hear what's on your mind, but I just want to throw in a, a, just a couple of of, of um, kind of observation or thoughts. Um, you 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 said, uh, Alfonso, that you you sound like a deflationist, and it kind of made me think because I'm the Oldest of the four of us today here, and and you know when I started in in the financial markets, I also come from a, a bond trading background. Um, and in the in the mid '80s, um, often when you start your career, has kind of an impact on how you end up seeing things. And I started, although I started in the mid-80s, one of the first things I, I saw was the crash of 1987. And it, I think it's made me incredibly cautious and risk-averse for the rest of my career. So I'm kind of thinking a little bit, if, if you don't mind, thinking that maybe because of the time that you and Andreas have started in this financial world, maybe it's harder for you guys to see inflation because you've never... Experienced it. That's one thing. Because when I study history, when I look at market cycles, which I actually believe in, you know, the forty-year bond cycle, why why, interest rate cycle? Why would that suddenly stop? Why are we not going to see ten percent yields again, and or or maybe even fifteen? That's what history tells me. I may not know what why at this moment. But there are so many things I didn't know two years ago that has happened since. So, um, I, and some of the conversations that Jim and I have had is that one of my themes is that expect the unexpected. Um, I think we've lost our imagination because central banks have kind of helped us to stay on the narrow or narrow and straight for 20 plus years. But I actually think we should, and, and maybe it comes back to this point, I think one of you mentioned about trust one of my big worries is, in fact, that at some point, we are going to lose trust in authorities, in central banks, that they can manage all of the things they say they can. And um, if that happens, I think all cards are on the table, really, in terms of what can happen. Sorry, Andres, Actually, I go on. want to dive in and say one thing here, Niels, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, just addressing as it relates to what you said, Niels, and, and what Alf, Alfonso
4: was saying as well. You know, two of your three points there really depend on technological advancement and innovation. And I think this refers, you know, there within the last two generations, particularly the last millennials on down, and I'm to some extent guilty of this as well, even though I'm on the higher end of that range, there's this belief that technology can solve all of our problems. And Niels, you could probably... Uh, remember this, I definitely can from the beginning of my childhood. You know, reading books like 1984 and, and 2000 Space Odyssey and watching the Jetsons as a kid, the future never came quick enough, right? Everything was always very slow to advance relative to our dreams and our aspirations um, as a society. Um, but technological advancement is secular. It will always happen. That is an overwhelming, uh, you know, deflationary um, thing, obviously. But I think to believe that we've now somehow shifted to up the curve to some much quicker pace of technological advancement is projecting a, a, a trend that comes with, uh, you know, again, to Neil's point, to how we were raised and what we've seen during our 40 years. This is part of what that 40-year cycle is about. Um, you know, Monetary policy, the free market ca- capitalistic push um, that happens whether through monetary policy or through other ways, is what drives these massive cycles of technological innovation and deflationary forces. And that speed of innovation slows when that when that lifeblood of, of advancement, which is money, which is access to resources, comes off the table. And that happens during times of populism. And I think that's what's important to understand with why these big cycles happen. 40 years, multi multigenerational, just long enough for people to forget, project a trend and things to get out of hand and for absolute power to corrupt Absolutely. So I, I'd be cautious, Al- Alfonso, for my opinion, to project this deflationary technological revolution piece into the future, whether it's for, for energy or whether it's for, um, you know, just broad uh, economic advancement. That's kind of just an aside, but something that, you know, is an opinion and something that I think we might be missing here as part of the calculus.
0: I, I also wanted to to touch upon what, what Nils said, because you basically accused us of not being old enough to understand inflation, Nils. <laughs> and um, I mean, I've heard this before um, uh, when I was in France the other week meeting in, in investors. Uh, the first question I got from a French portfolio manager was, why Why on earth should I listen to you on inflation? You weren't even born the last time it was here. Um, and I had actually struggled to answer that question, to be very honest. But I, I think there is a point to what you're saying, Nils. I don't think it's right that we cannot analyze inflation. But I think that there is a risk that as soon as uh, decision makers enter the office from my generation, they will have a very different view on how to tackle a um, a, a topic like inflation. Uh, and I can guarantee you that in my forecast, as soon as all decision makers are millennials as I am, I can guarantee you at that point, when the tipping point is is there, then we will tax the shit out of the boomers. I'm, I'm not one second in doubt about that. So I think there's a generational cliff here. And I think it matters as soon as the millennials will actually be in office. But they're not yet in office. And therefore, I still believe that from a political perspective, we still have much more in, in common during the next 10 years with the 10 years that preceded Um, 2022 compared to what we can envision in 30 years from now.
3: Alfonso, what are your thoughts on this? On taxing the boomers or... (laughs) Um, (laughs) On all all of this? Uh, I think Chem has a, a good remark that extrapolating a technological advancement trend and even assuming that the second derivative gets steeper is perhaps a dangerous assumption. Uh, I want to make clear that I am not even extrapolating gets steeper, but I'm just saying, you know, looking at today's resources, looking at today's technological situation and extrapolating the net zero emissions, uh, consumption co- for required for commodities might be misleading because you're assuming no technological advancement from that perspective, which seems to be a bit too conservative on the other end of things. And the same for the labor demand. Um, Assuming no robotization, no technological advancement seems to me too much. So I would assume at least some when you make these assessments Um, and in general, uh, not being old enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm used to that uh, to that trick being played to me for my entire career. I started managing I I I think it was twenty-seven and a half when they promoted me to to run the large book with a team of people. I had to face a lot of this criticism. But hey, I'm bold. So being bold really helps because I look older than I am. <laughs> uh, but but no, in, in reality, it's 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 a valid point. That's one of the reasons, Niels, why Andreas and I interviewed um, Stain Jakobsen on our podcast, The Macro Trading Floor. He has been around literally when uh, we had the last inflation spike. So we we are keen to hear from people who lived through that. um, And there is a value in experience, definitely. Uh, We can only run the analysis based on what we see today, uh, our understanding of the monetary system and looking at history. That's all we can do. Uh, and I'm not old enough to have experience from the 70s. And the last comment is on, ta- on, on taxing the boomers. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's another interesting thing. So taxing means draining resources from the private sector. It means taking resources away from the guys that are supposed to buy the goods and services in the inflationary basket. That's what it means. It means the government is getting richer and the private sector is getting poorer. That's what it means. Now, if you tax the boomers and then you reallocate resources to another cohort of the population, that's a different thing because it's a, it's a, it's a reallocation of resources. And this can be positive both for real growth and for inflationary prospects going forward because one of the main reasons why we have very negative structure, very you know, shallow structural growth and pretty low inflation is because resources have been misallocated. We have zombie companies that have have gone around for quite a long time. They have a very weak business model, but they have been able to survive because borrowing costs have been extremely low for a while. This is one example of a misallocation of resources. So if you allocate the same amount of resources in the private sector in a better way, this might be quite a smart way to enhance some long-term structural growth and as well to revive some inflationary pressures. And I do agree with Andreas that this is gonna get done it's basically a tax on wealth at the end of the day because the boomers in in air quotes are the guys who benefited the most from the everything rally that we have seen over the last 40 years housing bonds equities if you closed your eyes and threw a dart at the wall and bought an asset class you made money over the last 40 years and so obviously if you tax some of these capital gains effectively wealth let's say wealth tax and you distribute that towards um, more productive outlets, if you're able to find those, then you're going to get a better perspective for positive real growth and some revive in uh, in inflation too. So I think it's going to get done, but it's in minimum 10 years from now.
1: I would, uh,
4: I would argue that, I, compl- I think we all agree on this. This is populism embedded. Um, at the end of the day, the labor class is the young. They've been the ones without the capital. Um, they have not, you know, Crypto is an embodiment of this, honestly, this distrust of government that that they've had because they haven't been able to build a nest egg, right? The speculation in the market that we've seen is an attempt to catch up because they've all been behind the the YOLO calls and the crypto. The Growing up during a time of technological revolution, the belief that technology can solve our wills, you know, all of our ills. Um, I think that I couldn't agree more that rebalance is coming, and it's coming as a generational divide as well, and is is, is really inevitable. I would say it's sooner than we think. Um, I would I would say the the pitchforks are in hand as we speak, and the younger generation is, um, you know, is coming to uh, kind of political power. I think way quicker than that. So, um, but I, I think we all agree it's a, a secular trend. The question is how soon, um, and how you know how, how that works on the timeline.
2: Just maybe to, to shift gear a little bit, I know we've touched on it, uh, but I'm just curious um, for, for for your thoughts on this. Uh, w- one of the things that we've also seen, and certainly in, in, in my career, when I started out, there was some divergence between central banks policies and you had a world economy where you could have, you know, Asia doing well but Europe doing poorly and the US kind of neutral and it was, you know, yin and yang uh, at different times but then we got into this very synchronized world everyone was doing well at the same time and and so on and so forth. Now it seems like we're heading back towards more divergence obviously um, just, just to frame a few things uh, you have someone, um, I think the chief economist uh, from the ECB saying yesterday, uh, I think he's called Philip Lane, that that rate hikes of uh, 25 basis points in July and September are the benchmark pace that also yesterday you had one of the Fed members, uh, Christopher Waller, and I think actually his term is going all the way to 2030, saying, I support tightening policy by another 50 basis points for several meetings, and in particular, I'm not taking 50 basis points hikes off the table until I see inflation coming down closer to our 2% target. And then you have somewhere in Japan where the BOJ is on their way to buying up every single government bond There is, given the pace that they have had so far this year, we're talking about potentially they could be done by the end of the year um, and no more ten-year jdbs How do you guys, who are experts in this, how do you see that the the, the divergence of central bank policies play into all of this?
0: Maybe we should uh, look into a scenario with uh, a revival of FX hedge funds because they struggled big time over the past say yeah. 5 years due to a lack of divergence between central banks and i or 15 think 15 years should, i would yeah, say yeah 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 <laughs> uh, but in, in particular the last 5 right um, but I, I i tend to think that you're onto something um, the first clue being the big move that we saw in the japanese yen in a negative direction as a consequence of bank of japan just refusing to join this reverse fx war um, so it is really interesting times when it comes to di- comes to divergence between central banks uh, and i'm still of the view That the european central bank is trapped to a much 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 larger extent than the federal reserve when it comes to uh, being independent uh, in the monetary policy by the end of the day which means that um, i could invest a very strong move in the dollar if the european central bank by the end of the day refuses to act on the inflation that we see right now Uh, i think they will have a, a huge struggle um, over, over summer, uh, with with coming up with right uh, communication, because I don't think that they can go a lot above uh, zero uh, on on the policy rate, um, due due to the um, due to the nature of the euro setup. Um, and therefore, I perfectly agree with you that we will have diverging trends, both from an economic perspective, but also from a monetary policy perspective.
3: So. Uh, on the FX front and, inter- and and banks and interest rate, um, I'm just looking in front of me at one year implied volatility at the money in FX pairs, and I look at the following: Euro dollar one year implied vol at the money eight percent, okay, US uh, US dollar yen eight and a half percent. So does it look to you as a very high volatility regime? Where well, if you look at where realized volatility was in FX pairs over the last. 10 years, there have been moments where for a few quarters maybe you had some divergence and then you had realized volatility in euro dollar or dollar yen, which was maybe 10 to 12% annualized. But generally speaking, you have been, you know, at 5 to 6%. Nothing. Basically speaking, nothing. If you assume a normal distribution and you divide this by square root of 252, it's gonna be like half a percent a day, less than half a percent a move a day. So nothing, nothing happened in FX land. And why? Because we were all stuck to the zero lower bound everywhere in the world. But now you have Japan that has a completely different, let's say, uh, landscape, monetary policy-wise compared to the US or Europe. Japan is in a situation where inflation expectations in Japan are 1%. Five-year inflation expectations are 1%, five-year forward, five-year inflation expectations in Japan are below 1%. So you have to tell me where these guys would have to find the courage to say, Oh, we're gonna you know, tighten monetary policy because, because of what? You have realized inflation in Japan over the last 20 years has been 0.2%. Core inflation in Japan over the last 20 years has been on average 0.2%. Inflation expectation of below 1%. So obviously, if you ask me, Japan is like, hey, if we can get an orderly depreciation of the yen and we can actually import some inflation uh, in our country, we actually wouldn't mind that too much, to be honest. Uh, So they are on a completely different path than than the US or Europe. And on Europe as well, I had quite a disagreement with Andreas in the past few months because, again, these guys are extremely reactionary. And in this case, they're seeing inflation at 9% year-on-year in Germany, core inflation in Europe just bringing the 3.8% year-on-year, broadening towards services. I mean, these guys are they are like, wow, I'm at risk of losing control and I don't even want to think about it. So right now I have to preserve some credibility on my inflation fighting front and I will join the party. Yes, I mean, uh, look at BTP bond spreads. They're already above 200 basis point. They will, Italy or the weakest links, let's say of the European side will suffer from it. But right now between Italian government bond spreads at 200 basis point or at 250, and having the euros light through parity basically if you don't do something about your monetary policy because the Federal Reserve is being hawkish. So you need to make sure that despite your energy terms of trade on hitting terms of trade on the euro, you are hawkish enough to show credibility on inflation. You will choose this path to preserve credibility. So you are having different jurisdictions, having different incentive schemes. We are not stuck at the lower zero bound anymore everywhere in the world. And there are different incentive schemes from different parts of the world, which will lead, I think, to higher realized volatility in FX. I agree with Andreas on that. So I think buying some volatility where it makes sense in FX pairs is not a bad a, a bad thing to do here and there. And, you know, it's just some more fun for a macro guy like me looking at different things. For the last five years, it was basically like, hey, let's lever up on beta, Uh, Let's, uh, you know, if I have a mandate to buy a bunch of government bonds or credits or et cetera, I'm going to just look for the most, you know, high beta credit risk intensive stuff. I'm going to lever up on that and buy, and then I'm going to try and be smart with managing my downside risk. And that was it really. And now it's more of a, of a macro environment. It's, it's more fun actually, if you ask me, what's up Andreas?
0: I, I just wanted to say that this is the first time in history that an Italian has told a Dane to be more hawkish on monetary <laughs> policy.
3: Yes, <laughs> I mean back the date. I, uh, in 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 the um, uh, real money circle, I was named to be one of the least dovish Italian portfolio managers who ever existed. I was always on on the side of, you know, you, 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 you don't need to wear flags when trying to manage money. It's all about finding risk and reward. And in this case, I think the European Central Bank has a problem at their hand, but the incentive scheme is rather towards preserving credibility on the inflation front and making sure the euro doesn't depreciate towards psychological thresholds of, let's say, parity against the dollar, rather than, be, than being afraid of fragmentation, BTP boon spreads are at 200 basis point. They were at 300 plus because some crazy politicians in Italy told that they wanted to leave the Eurozone. And you know they can be at 250 again, and nobody's gonna say, oh my God, we're on the brink of default here immediately, or at least the incentive scheme drives the European Central Bank towards hiking rates right now. But actually one of my points also with this
2: divergence is that, um, for example, within Europe, Um, We have all these countries with one single currency, and now we're heading into a period of time where maybe not all countries need the same medicine, yet they're going to get the same medicine. We've seen this story play out once before. Uh, You know, Ireland didn't do so well uh, last time that happened, and and a few other countries. And and, and actually, I think it's more a structural uh, risk that I see, um, meaning that the whole euro project might come under extreme pressure wants uh, these divergences in the individual... I mean, we can just look at on the energy situation right now. Yesterday, when they were trying to get some kind of agreement as to what they're going to do with Russian uh, oil imports, well, not everyone agrees anymore, right? Because we have different structural issues. Um, so anyway, it was more an observation, I guess, uh, from my side, that I think we, we we're heading into a much more uncharted territory um, and we're seeing that already in just the divergence in monetary policies around the world
4: yes I think that's a very I, I couldn't agree more I think we're going from a collaboration game to a cooperation game broadly I think that's what happens when um you know inflation starts right Where this is the unwind of some of the globalization that you know that that this is the the dynamic between populism right and and uh, you know free market economics uh, everybody's now trying to get there. It's a, what's due to them. And, and, and from an American perspective, I mean, the Fed is going to keep, uh, you know, from a credibility perspective, increasing rates. Uh, they, they just built a fence around the Federal Reserve with barbed wire. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Just in the, in, in the quiet of darkness, um, you know, populism is a thing and, and, and they have to, the Fed has to react to one of their dual mandates. Um so uh, I expect dollar strength to continue secularly and that I think that is going to have a ton of knock-on effects globally that people
2: are not prepared for. So the good news of course in all of this is as as both Andreas and Alfonso was talking about recently on their uh, podcast is that the solution is of course that uh, Kathy Wood will be right we're going to get 30 to 50% annualized <laughs> GDP growth that's going to solve every uh, situation we can imagine. Um but it kind of reminded me of one of your recent uh, sub-stacks, actually, uh, Alfonso, and that is something I think you called avoiding making a stupid mistake or something like that. So as time is starting to run out a little bit from our conversation, because, you know, some of us have some hard stops here today, I, I wouldn't mind if, if we can kind of just talk a little bit about what are some of the key mistakes we, we investors have to avoid as we head into this. And I also want to frame it a little bit because I'm, I'm kind of a believer in this fourth turning. I'm sure both of you are familiar with the fourth turning as a concept. All of the things that I see right now is kind of lining up in that direction. But we have another eight, maybe 10 years to go before at least Neil Howie believes we're completely out of the fourth turning. So being being uh, astute investors in the next five, ten years is going to be incredibly important. And I'm just thinking sort of uh, as, as we round uh, off our conversation today, what are some of the things that investors should be thinking of from your point of view, um, maybe to at least avoid making these stupid mistakes um, that you talked about? <laughs> yeah, so.
3: Neil, so this is the, I'm very creative with titles. Uh, the title of my last uh, article on the macro compass is called Avoid let's avoid making stupid mistakes or something like that and it looked at what a long-term investor should avoid doing here and effectively it's basically two things as a, as a long-term investor you are rewarded for harvesting risk premium so you sit you have a distribution which normally is skewed to the right in terms of return so you start from a positive uh, mean in the distribution in terms of real returns i mean that's that's an amazing position where to start so how what you should avoid doing to waste this competitive advantage as a harvester of risk premium over time. Two things, A, don't size your positions without looking at the underlying volatility of each asset and the volatility regime you've been looking at. Because I see a lot of people sizing a position in Ethereum or Bitcoin as if it's a euro-dollar position. It is not the same thing. There is a large underlying volatility, which is different between these asset classes. And as well, you know, what people should try and allocate a limited amount of capital to each position and according to the underlying volatility. So if you do that, I think you already have a competitive advantage on top. And the, the other one is correlation regimes. And people tend to assume that these correlations remain constant across macro cycles, but they are not. And we have seen already the bond equity correlation flip. Uh, in this environment. And I think people should be very careful about correlations flipping and proxy hedging, which has been one of the most detrimental things for my PNL over the last eight years, trying to proxy hedge things, looking at correlations. I mean, always be careful about correlation regimes. And if you are careful about those two, the odds are skewed in your favor because the distribution of long-term returns that are linked to rewarding you for taking risks are skewed your way. So then some risk management, avoiding making stupid mistakes and you should get there
2: what
0: about you Andreas? <laughs> the two points i want to make here ultimately uh, are the following first avoid being too active in this kind of market environment uh, at least uh, I can uh, sort of speak for myself in that regards because uh, on top of losing money <laughs> from a return perspective, I've also paid a couple of percents to brokerages over this <laughs> over the spring being too active. Um, so uh, I mean, it's very tempting to be active in a very volatile environment, but I don't think it works. Uh, and the second thing is to ultimately always ensure to have positions on in your portfolio hedging against you being wrong. Uh, so I. Uh, have a position in gold and i have a position in crypto uh i don't really believe in any of them as a long-term bet but they're a hedge against me being wrong uh, and it's always a good idea to have a hedge against me being wrong i
3: guess <laughs> andreas i want to just say one last thing here is that um we always joke nils and Cham, on the podcast that the inverse Stino ETF uh must be trademarked. I mean the guy's great he's, he's wrong 90% of the times. But now I heard Chem saying structural dollar bullishness, Andreas, which means that as you are long the UUP ETF, I mean the dollar ETF basically Chem shorted the inverse Stino ETF. Is now is now agreeing with you. I mean, what, what shall we do with this, Andreas? This is scary. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should yeah. be Did worried. You, you, <laughs> yeah, you need to tell your wife about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but but a, a little bit of encouragement here, um, and I had I did hear you guys joke about the inverse uh, Steno ETF. But um, by the way, does it come in two x and three x? <laughs> <laughs> <or? laughs> Sorry, no, no, I didn't mean that. I, what what I was saying is that you know I come from the trend following world, right? That has been around for decades, and we are wrong sixty percent of the time, right? That has not stopped all these strategies for making uh, a very healthy double-digit return for five decades. So I would not, uh, I would not uh, be worried uh, at this stage. But I do want to ask you maybe uh, something, because we could have gone in many different directions. And I know we are running out of time. But maybe my last question is, is there anything we missed today? We, again, so just something that you want to bring up to the very, before we, we, we close up that you think is important at this time?
3: Yes, um, one minute. There is no Fed put. There is no Fed put. The Fed put exists when inflation expectations are 2% and realized inflation is 2% and therefore the Fed can care about financial conditions or not destroying financial conditions too much. They actually want financial conditions to tighten. So they didn't sell a put to the market. They actually bought a put, if you ask me. There is no Fed put.
0: Let me conclude by saying there is an ECB put, which is why you need to be short euro dollar because the ECB ECB put basically exists um, perpetually as long as the euro exists.
2: Okay, cool. Excellent. Great points to end up with. Andreas and Alfonso, this has been uh, as awesome as we had hoped for uh, with uh, a lot of knowledge shared by both of you. So thanks very much for doing that today. And by the way, make sure you follow and subscribe to Andreas' and Alfonso's work on Substack as well as their engaging Twitter feeds. You can, of course, find the links in the show notes for today's episode. And as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a true global macro-driven world and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me... Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.